0: Why did I have to fall in love with such a fool? I ran into a story for you, a front-page story. Gus, you're a dear, sweet boy, and you'll bring my little present. You're listening to The Pictures Got Small, an appreciation podcast for the glamorous and sometimes dark history of old Hollywood, hosted by Francesca Luisi. I happen to know the police are looking for this car. Oh dear, I hoped you wouldn't. You heard me say no, didn't you? Well, that's what I mean. See here, I told you I wasn't asking anything from anybody. I can take care of myself. Maybe you have, but if you think I want to stay cooped up in this place any longer than I have to... This is one of the biggest stories that's cracked in a long time. I've simply got to get it to my paper. No worry about that. We've got all the time in the world. Welcome back to The Pictures Got Small, the podcast where we normally talk about the making of classic Hollywood films. I'm your host, Francesca Luisi, and today I have a mini-sode for you. I just thought I'd do something a little bit different while I work on episode six. Actually, that's a lie because I haven't decided what movie I'm going to do next. I'm between two films and I haven't decided yet, but hopefully within the next few days I'll settle on one. Until then, I thought I would tell you the story of The Wrong Door Raid. Now, if you're here, you're probably a fan of old Hollywood, as am I, and you very well may already know this story. But whether you do or you don't, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought I'd just do something kind of light and quick. This is a tale that involves several high-profile Hollywood figures, so I thought it would make for a good little mini So I hope you like it. And without further ado, please allow me to tell you the story of the Wrong Door Raid. November 5th, 1954. Thirty-nine-year-old secretary Florence Cotts was living every single woman's nightmare when she was awakened by the sound of someone trying to break down her kitchen door. A resident of the Waring Apartments in West Hollywood, Kotz was in bed at the time of the first bangs against her door, and by the time she got herself out of bed, the intruders were already inside. As she stepped out of her bedroom, shards of broken glass and splinters of wood rained down on her kitchen floor. Kotz stood frozen in horror, clad in just her nightgown and a head full of rollers, as the silhouettes of four men appeared before her in the dark. One of them held something upright in his hands. Understandably, Cots at first assumed the man was brandishing a weapon— It was a camera. We've got the wrong place, she heard one of the men cry out. And then, just as quickly as they had burst into her home, the intruders all fled. The Los Angeles Police Department wrote the incident off as an attempted burglary. Blinded by the flash of the camera, Kotz could not positively identify any of the men. In the days before cameras and home security systems were the norm, the LAPD had nothing to work with. They had zero leads, let alone enough information to hold anyone accountable. Unable to pursue the matter further, the incident was seemingly forgotten about. For ten months, that is. Cots would get an even greater shock when the popular tabloid magazine Confidential ran a front-page story about the real reason Marilyn Monroe divorced Joe DiMaggio. The magazine relayed the entire account of the story, dubbing it the wrong door raid. Never in her wildest dreams would Koch have imagined that the incident at her apartment would eventually come to involve three of the biggest celebrities in the world. On October 27, 1954, just nine days before the raid, the divorce between Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had been finalized. Despite accounts that Marilyn filed for divorce after only eight months of marriage because DiMaggio had been cruel and abusive to her, the retired Yankee legend was convinced that she had actually left him for another man. DiMaggio's abuse stemmed from his jealousy. An old-fashioned Sicilian from a Roman Catholic family, Joe resented Marilyn's career and her sexy public image, especially the attention she would get from other men. He wanted his wife to give up her movie stardom to play homemaker for him. The final straw for their marriage came on September 15th, when Marilyn shot the iconic scene from The Seven-Year Itch, where the skirt of her white dress was blown up by the breeze from a subway grate. Joe visited his wife on set while the film was shot on location in New York City. The throng of nearly five thousand onlookers, most of them men, shouting and catcalling his wife, infuriated DiMaggio, who seethed on the sidelines as Marilyn posed for take after take of the scene. When it was revealed that Marilyn would have to double up her underwear as the bright movie lights were leaving little of her lower half to the imagination, joe had had enough he made his displeasure abundantly clear by cutting directly across the set as he made his departure later that night the couple allegedly fought back at their hotel room and things got violent some reports claimed that dimaggio broke one of marilyn's fingers in the fight when filming wrapped marilyn returned to beverly hills by herself a few days later her attorney called a press conference Clad in an all-black ensemble, Marilyn tearfully stood behind her lawyer as he announced her plans to divorce DiMaggio. The divorce was granted within a few weeks, which did nothing to quell Joe's jealousy. Convinced his actions were not to blame for the collapse of their marriage, DiMaggio was certain that Marilyn had to have been cheating on him. In the throes of paranoia and desperation, Joe sought advice from his friend and fellow Italian-American icon, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra recommended the services of Barney Radinsky, private investigator, to the stars. Rudinsky made a name for himself when he assisted on the case against Hollywood Madam Brenda Allen, which brought down the LAPD's own police chief and several officers. Additionally, Radinsky had once been the owner of the Sunset Strip nightclub Sherry's, which had famously been the site of gangster Mickey Cohen's shooting death in 1949. Now under DiMaggio's employ, Ruditsky was tasked with following Marilyn's every move. Newly divorced, Marilyn moved into the Brendan Apartments in West Hollywood. On the afternoon of November 5th, she drove her white Cadillac convertible eight blocks to the apartment of her friend and fellow actress, Sheila Stewart, who lived at the Waring Apartment House. While drinking with Sinatra at the posh Italian restaurant Villa Capri, DiMaggio received a phone call from Ruditsky, who informed him that one of his rookie investigators saw Marilyn's car outside the Waring Apartments. Despite apparently knowing that Stewart lived there, DiMaggio took this sighting as concrete evidence that Marilyn was romantically involved with someone else. Blinded by jealousy, Joe concocted a scenario where Marilyn had to have been having an affair with Hal Schaefer, who was both Marilyn and Stewart's vocal coach. Joe surmised that Stewart was allowing Marilyn to use her apartment to carry out her tryst with Schaefer. Joe told Ruditsky to meet him at Waring, where he intended to catch Marilyn and Schaefer in the act and collect photographic evidence as proof of their affair. DiMaggio's motivations remain unclear to this day. What did he intend to do with these photographs? Marilyn had already survived a nude photo scandal the year earlier when photos she posed for as a struggling model were used in the inaugural issue of Playboy magazine. Was he hoping a second scandal of such proportions would do irreparable damage to the career he so resented, which had gotten in the way of their marital bliss? Furthermore, seeing as they were by this time already officially divorced, proof of his ex-wife in the arms of another man wouldn't be legal grounds for anything. That being said, DiMaggio, Sinatra, and Ruditsky made their way to the Waring Apartments where they met Philip Irwin, the 21-year-old private investigator who worked for Ruditsky and had been following Marilyn. Curiously, also on the scene were Ruditsky and Irwin's wives. Though Irwin had identified Marilyn's car at this location, it wasn't until the crew assembled out front that they realized they didn't know which of the three apartments belonged to Stewart. Units 8120 and 8122 faced the front of the building. The third unit, 754, was at the side. DiMaggio took his chances on the leftmost door, number 8120. Stewart lived one door over in 8122. Confidential magazine had only been in circulation for three years by the time they reported the story of the wrong door raid, but the publication had already established itself as a thorn in the side of all studios who sought to keep ironclad control over their stars, and especially of their press. Where studios had always hand-fed stories to the movie magazines to give them exclusives about their stars while maintaining control of the narrative— Confidential dealt solely in the salacious stories that reflected poorly on both the celebrities and their employers. With an audience of 4.6 million, Confidential had become a dangerous threat to the already faltering studio system. In their desperation, the studio heads appealed to the government to intervene on their behalf. I'm sure there was a massive payoff involved— But either way, in the interest of not violating anyone's First Amendment rights, the investigation focused primarily on the role of private detectives who had been dabbling in tabloid journalism. By the time the state Senate committee meetings began in February 1957, it had been just over two years since the story of the wrong door raid broke. Because Confidential revealed that their source had been a private detective with ties to Hollywood, it didn't take long for the committee to pull Ruditsky and Irwin into the investigation. Shortly thereafter, Frank Sinatra was awakened by two policemen who burst into his home around four o'clock in the morning to serve him with a subpoena. Sinatra would later accuse the chief of police and the officers with violating his civil rights. By the time the hearings began, Marilyn was married to Arthur Miller. She was invited to attend, but never responded as she was in London filming The Prince and the Showgirl. The case, once categorized as a bizarre attempted burglary, was now bumped up to conspiracy to commit criminal mischief ruditsky denied any involvement by both himself and his agency sinatra had to testify under oath and at the risk of perjury admitted that he and dimaggio had been outside the apartment house on the evening in question but denied that either of them entered the residence both ruditsky and dimaggio seconded sinatra's claims though neither of them had been called to testify Ruditsky would later claim to have been recuperating from a heart attack at the time of the raid, while DiMaggio said he was attending to business on the East Coast. Phil Irwin, however, contradicted Sinatra. When he testified, Irwin was no longer under Ruditsky's employ, and therefore felt no obligation to protect him. "'Almost all of Mr. Sinatra's statements were false,' Irwin said on the stand." Going on to say that the only persons who did not enter Florence Kotz's apartment were his and Ruditsky's wives. Virginia Blagson, the landlady of the Waring Avenue Apartments who lived in the third side unit, backed up Irwin's testimony. Blagson would positively identify Frank Sinatra as one of the men she saw fleeing Kotz's apartment. Sheila Stewart also testified to having seen the men escaping, but admitted to not being able to see their faces i didn't know any of them because i was looking down on them but i would have recognized that pipsqueak sinatra she said but how did confidential learn of the story in the first place Irwin alleged that dimaggio never paid the ruditsky agency's eight hundred dollar service fee hard to argue against joe on that note since Irwin's efforts hadn't exactly delivered apparently it was sinatra who eventually picked up the tab there were only four people alive who knew all about the details of the raid, Irwin told the committee. That was me, Ruditsky, Sinatra, and DiMaggio. I didn't tell, and Sinatra and DiMaggio wouldn't. That leaves Ruditsky. Knowing that Sinatra eventually paid Ruditsky and was recommended for the job by the singer in the first place, it seems unlikely that Ruditsky would have betrayed his famous friends. However, we do know that Irwin was no longer working for Ruditsky at the time of the hearings, and had probably been fired as a result of the botched raid. Though it has never been officially revealed who the source was, it seems that Irwin had the most reasonable motive. The wrong door raid became just a blip on the radar as the case against Confidential raged on into August 1957. Over 100 subpoenas were issued to stars that had at one time been the subject of material printed in the magazine. Among the notable figures who showed up to testify was Dorothy Dandridge, whom Confidential alleged participated in interracial lovemaking in public. As miscegenation was illegal in several states at this time, these allegations threatened both Dandridge's career and safety. Tab Hunter, who at the time was still a closeted gay man, showed up to defend himself against the tongue-in-cheek article about his 1950 disorderly conduct arrest that nearly outed his sexuality. Actress Maureen O'Hara also testified against the magazine's claims that she had been spotted making out with an unknown man in Row 35 at Grauman's Chinese Theater. After 14 days of deliberation, the jury was unable to come to a verdict. Though Confidential rejoiced in their hung jury, the truth of the matter was that their publisher paid off the attorney general to agree not to retry the case if Confidential agreed to no longer air the dirty laundry of the biggest names in Hollywood. After Confidential's trial was over, Cott sued DiMaggio, Sinatra, and the rest of the raid participants to the tune of $200,000, nearly $1.4 today. That case would eventually settle for just $7,500, about 53000 when adjusted for inflation. Joe DiMaggio seemingly learned his lesson after the event, and even went to counseling to work on his abusive behavior and jealousy. He and Marilyn reconciled and managed to stay friends. It was DiMaggio who rescued Marilyn from the involuntary psychiatric hold she was placed under at the Payne Whitney Hospital in New York in February 1961, threatening to tear the building down brick by brick if they did not release her. When Marilyn passed away in August 1962, Joe handled all of the funeral arrangements. He would never remarry, and for the rest of his life saw that fresh roses were placed at her grave every week. When he died on March 8, 1999, it was reported that his last words were, Now I'll finally get to see Marilyn. So there you have it. A brief history of the Wrong Door Raid and the trial against Confidential Magazine. I hope you guys liked it. This was a quick and easy episode for me to do. And I think I'm going to start incorporating these into the schedule in between my longer making-of episodes. And if you're not already, follow me on Instagram at the pictures got small. With that, of all the podcasts on all the streaming platforms, on all the smartphones in all the world, I'm certainly glad you found mine. I'm Francesca Luisi, and this has been The Pictures got small. Oh, why did I have to fall in love with such a fool? I ran into a story for you, a front page story. Got You're a dear, sweet boy, and you'll bring my little present. I happen to know the police are looking for this car. Oh, dear, I hoped you wouldn't. You heard me say no, didn't you? Well, that's what I mean. See here, I told you I wasn't asking anything from anybody. I can take care of myself. Maybe you have, but if you think I want to stay cooped up in this place any longer than I have to. This is one of the biggest stories that's cracked in a long time. I've simply got to get it to my paper. No worry about that. We've got all the time in the world. Thank you for listening to The Pictures. Got small. Remember, Hollywood was glamorous and sometimes dark.